0: Steve and I study Vintage Cantrips on episode 34 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 34 of So Many Insane Plays, in which Steve and I examine a very important class of skill-testing cards for Eternal Format's Cantrips. I'm Kevin Krohn with Steven Menendian. Hi folks. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Mini Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGcast, or the We have a lot of announcements this episode, Steve. First and foremost, I appeared on Pauper to the People 143. They record more often than we do, so that's a few episodes to go by now. But we discussed commons in Pauper and in Vintage, where they had commonality, where they had differences, and powerful commons and what it means in both of those formats. It was a lot of fun.
1: What What are some key takeaways that would be of interest to me and our audience?
0: My favorite one, which we discussed at length, was just role players. There are certain commons that are strong role players in both formats. And things are frequently played in Vintage because of their great efficiency. Like Steel Sabotage was a great example. And ironically, Steel Sabotage is also heavily played in Pauper because Affinity is a deck. Hmm. But then another converse example was Snuff Out. Snuff Out, obviously highly efficient from a mana perspective, is played in Vintage sometimes on the Fringe, and is played in Pauper at one point, but the metagame evolved such that Snuff Out was not a good answer because mostly Hexproof and a few other things. So we discussed the the role of key role-playing commons in both formats, and it was a lot of fun. That's cool. And I think any of our audience looking for maybe a little bit of a different perspective on things or some variety in their podcast listening would really enjoy it. Also, our show, Many Insane Plays, got third place in the latest mtgolibrary.com top 10 magic podcasts for March. We'll have a link in our show notes in case you want to check that out. They discuss our show and a number of others in some good detail with some good critical eye for from a number of different angles and judges. So check that out. We also have several upcoming tournaments. Steve, can you talk a little about, about Old School Magic? There's one coming up in Unimonia on May 18th. What's that all about?
1: Well, I suspect that we'll uh, devote a podcast in the very near future to this, this format. But basically, Old School Magic refers to a class of formats that... Um, permit only older sets. In other words, it's the opposite of standard. Whereas standard is the most recent sets, old school magic refers to basically any format that that does not permit the most recent sets. So um, a number of groups around the communities around the, the globe have begun organizing old school format tournaments, the most prominent of which is the so-called 93-94 group out of out of Western Europe where they have developed their own banned and restricted list and the only sets they permit play are Hmm. alpha through the dark. Um, our tournament in Eudaimonia in May, and, and we'll have a link to the tournament announcement in our show notes, will permit Fallen Empires as well, which I think is a good move. But I'll be writing about this in the near future, and I think we'll probably spend an entire podcast talking about it. it well.
0: Would you characterize it as basically vintage from a certain era in the early 90s, or is it somehow different?
1: It's a really interesting question. I don't define old-school magic that narrowly. In, in an article I'll be writing soon on this topic— I think that you could play old school magic formats that are not so-called type one, and in fact, that precede type one. So, 93, 94 actually is the the type one started out as the magic constructed format that preceded this this schism mm-hmm. of type one and type two. But but to your to your point, for example, if you wanted to play standard from the 1995 Worlds format, which would be actually great fun. It was the I think it was Alexander Bloomkey won with a, a a necro deck against a really cool. Blue-white control deck. I would consider that consider that as well to be old-school Magic. So again, old-school Magic in my mind refers to any format that does not permit the most recent sets, um, and, and, which really does make it the anti-standard. And, and again, it's about the feel, flavor, fun, the strategic differences, and um, of the really older older uh, formats. But most prominent expressions of this format are 93, 94 or versions that allow Fallen Empires or that add successive sets. So I'm also a huge fan of versions that uh, permit Ice Age um, as well. Um, And I think there's a group in Sweden that's going to do it with through mirage which is which is really cool as well so there's it's it's really um a broad a broad brush to describe a number of different formats and it's not just historical so again the 93 94 group have developed their own banned and restricted list and while we should spend future time talking about this i'll just mention one or two things that they've done they for example um have restricted things like Power Artifact and they've restricted Black Vise and Strip Mine, uh, but they've unrestricted a number of cards that were you know, feared at the time. For example, they um, they've unrestricted Mirror Universe in part because Mirror Universe um, under modern rules is not quite as is threatening. It used to be a win condition, um, and they unrestricted a number of other cards like Berserk uh, and and a few others. So it, in fact, they, what they've done is they've created their old their own format with um, you know a number of older sets.
0: Sounds way cool. I look forward to talking about it, and I imagine it brings up lots of fun issues. Regarding modern deck construction techniques using the older sets.
1: That's right. I mean, part of the fun is thinking about, you know, p- part of the fun is it's like uh, imagining filling out your March <laughs> Madness bracket after after March Madness happened, right? It's like you get to use the knowledge and insight of years of Magic theory. To sort of work backwards to see what could have happened, what would have happened had people had that knowledge at the time. But it, it, I think the, the most attractive part of it is not just the nostalgia, although that's a great part of it. I think what's most attractive about it is that it, it's so strategically different and that the cards that are really great in the format are cards that really have no no home anymore. So cards like Juzam Jin can be real powerhouses, and yet there's no format in which Juzam Jin is really good. I I doubt it's even that great in cube anymore. So it's a format in which really fun, iconic, nostalgic cards uh, not only have a home, but can still reign supreme.
0: Awesome. And again, that event is on May 18th at Eudaimonia. Also at Eudaimonia on April 20th, coming up very soon, is Vintage. And here in the Midwest, we have Team Serious Open on April 12 in Columbus, Vintage at Odyssey Games in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, also on April 12, and another Team Serious Open on May 31st slash June 1st. I'm not sure why their announcement lists two dates.
1: Did you play in the last Kalamazoo tournament?
0: Not the last one, no, but I did play in the last two tournaments in Grand Rapids. Vintage here in south uh, west Michigan has actually kind of blossomed lately. We've had tournaments in Kalamazoo a lot. Grand Rapids has started to draw a smallish crowd and Big Rapids, which is just north of me here, is also starting to run vintage tournaments, so there's kind of a cluster of events going on now.
1: Is the Team Series Open only in Columbus or are they also having events in Cleveland?
0: I don't believe there's any conscious effort to avoid Sandusky, but the next two we have coming up are both in Columbus, so I don't know if they have a longer-term plan or not. I haven't spoken to them about it.
1: Are you, are you planning to attend either of those? Are those out of reach? Time
0: well, there's a Kalamazoo and Columbus tournament on the same day, a week from now. Uh-oh. So I'm going to do the closer one in Kalamazoo to support my local group. But I I won't be surprised if I'm down in Columbus again in another month.
1: There's one other announcement that I have. And um, by the time this podcast is live, my book review for Titus Chalk's really brilliant narrative, "So Do You Wear a Cape," will be on EternalCentral.com. <laughs> so we'll put that into the show notes. Um, you know, Kevin, um, this book is really remarkable in a number of respects. But I think the most remarkable thing about this book is it's a it's a really long book that does a great job of describing the Magic the Gathering phenomenon without the reader having to have any knowledge of magic. It, it whatsoever. So you can read this book, enjoy it without having to know anything about the, how the game actually works. Um, and um you know it's frankly a book that i think every magic player who really cares about the game should should read at some point it's only a few dollars on amazon.com i think it might be like four or five dollars for the book so we should we should put a link into the show notes um the the book is so fascinating because he covers so many different aspects of the game so you know and it's it's a real page turner he he's a, a skilled journalist so he does a great job grabbing your attention and creating a lot of dramatic, dramatic tension. Um, you know, so the stories he tells are sort of about the, the growth of wizards of the coast, the creation of magic, um, the, you know, the, the efforts, the business side really comes into focus. The finance side, you know, There know, there's stories about people who invested in the game, a janitor who worked at Boeing with Peter Atkinson, who's now a millionaire, you know, anecdotes like I didn't know that Richard Garfield is actually a great, great grandson of a U.S. president. <laughs> um, with the, with the last the same surname um you know and and it, there's just so much in there he covers the growth of the pro tour you know he does a remarkable job of painting a profile of players like mark justice, Mark Justice's uh, you know, rise to fame and then his crash and his descent. And uh, you know, Brian Weissman. he's interviewed he interviewed Richard Garfield, Peter Atkinson. It's clear that he's done an enormously amazing investigatory uh, amount of investigatory work to create this this narrative. Um, and, and, you know, it, there's so much that's covered, there's, but you don't have to have any knowledge of the game at all. And I think it's actually a, fa- a fantastic read, not just for Magic players, but for people who um, are you know, close to Magic players, whether it's wives, husbands, partners, children. I, I really think it's something that can sort of open a portal to that world that is sometimes so opaque. To, to others, it, and it's it's a really a legitimate read. I mean, it's it's one, frankly, um, I, I was not expecting it to be nearly as good as it was. I, I read a lot of books, mostly nonfiction. and um, this is actually just as good as a lot of the, you know, Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award books I've been reading recently in many respects.
0: Wow. And I assume that vintage plays its appropriately prominent role in certain sections of
1: the book, yes. It does. He has an entire chapter on, on the discussion over the reserve list, um, and, um, you know, he doesn't talk about what any of the cards are on it, but but the concept of the limited amount of cards that were printed at the early time and, and the debates around the reserve list, and uh, it, it, to that extent, it really it really does, Um I think it, he does. He, not only does he do a good job of covering all these topics, but he also does a really good job in terms of really selecting the key points and, and and really you know bringing those to the fore and making them really clear. There's really so much in here that that I didn't even know, and I had written you know my own history of vintage, which I think is actually a fantastic complement to this, the 10-year history that's on Terminal Central. If you really want to know sort of what, what the decks are in the metagames, he just keeps it really high level in terms of the stories, like around the first world championship. You know, John Finkel's rise, the the background on John Finkel. Um, there's some really salacious stuff in here, too. Anecdotes about wizards, corporate retreats, stuff on bullying, stuff that I'd forgotten. Like the, the lawsuits around Magic in the early years uh, from, uh, you know, parents who were concerned about... Uh, the negative influence on children in terms of demonic imagery and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think his wide lens really brings into focus all of the social controversies, business and finance aspects of the game that really make it accessible. Um, uh, I think the one thing that um, I was uh, sort of nervous about is it's not a great title in my view. I think that, uh, but it, but it has so many remarkable insights. If I was naming, titling the book, I might call it something like The Greatest Game Ever. You know, something like with a subtitle, maybe, uh, I don't know, um, 20 Years of a Global Phenomenon. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> Catchy. But, but he does He does such a good job of describing sort of the drunken and drug-induced spiral that doomed Mark Justice. The uh, growing pains, the John fin- Finkel experience, being bullied, living overseas. I mean, there's just so much there. And, and I didn't even occur to me, but there, there are some there are some really actually incredible insights and connections that he makes. He really does a good job of making the case that magic was part and parcel of really the growth of the internet and uh, the world wide web. Um, and you know, for example, things that. Connect, facts that I had known, but connections he makes. You know, Microsoft in Wizards of the Coast used to do magic tournament battles in the you know mid-1990s. Uh, the World Wide Web, the Usenet, really one of the major drivers of online auction sites like eBay and Usenet discussions were actually magic. As programmers and magic fans were... Finding ways to communicate with each other, and, and just out of the headlines this year, in the last couple of months, MTG Gox, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges, derives its well, formerly <laughs> derives its name from Magic the Gathering. Started out as a, uh, so, so in, in in a sense, he really paints a, a portrait of Wizards of the Coast as a Silicon area, a Silicon Valley startup, and I think convincingly and persuasively so. But it's, a, it's an incredible book. I mean, I, I really can't praise it enough. I, I again, I think. Um, I mean the the background story is not just in terms of you know some of the stuff that happened it wishes of the coast which I don't know how he found out about this stuff and he has a lot of financial you know from the creation of the of the, the company to the the near stillbirth launch of the game there's a story in there about how shipment of cards almost didn't make it to gen con the first gen con it almost they, they arrived late friday and they were they were in so much the company was in so much debt that if that that shipment didn't arrive that the company might have gone bankrupt and we might not even have magic today wow. so there's so many stories like that that are compelling fascinating anecdotes Um, connections that he makes he follows lsv in in a recent tournament Does a profile of lsv
0: it sounds like our audience would really enjoy it
1: i i I think so i mean i really enjoyed it as well so and it's an
0: electronic book
1: it's an e-book it's exclusively an e-book and it's definitely worth the read One of the things that I think is really also important about the book and why I think all Magic players should read it is because it allows you to think about Magic in, in a historical perspective, and it brings into focus so many of the key issues the game continues to face. And one of those, those issues is, of course, the spiraling prices of, of cards. I mean, Magic has just grown by leaps and bounds so, so much that cards just printed a few years back are now You know, growing out of um, growing out of the range of, of most most players, potential new players. Wizards, I think, did a really smart thing by announcing a number of modern GPs this year. I don't remember whether they announced six or eight, but it's certainly more G- modern GPs than they've ever had legacy GPs in here. Um, but we've seen in the last couple of months the prices of Fetchland skyrocket. And those are the building blocks of the modern format, but they also have repercussions for formats like legacy and vintage. So a couple months back, Chaz Andrus, who writes for Star City Games, and mostly finance columns, uh, wrote an article about the cost of legacy. And one of the issues that I had written about in 2010 when I was arguing against the reserve list is that Legacy will eventually run run into the same issues that Vintage did, meaning the building blocks of the format are mana bases. In Legacy, that means fetch lands and dual lands. In Vintage, that means... Fetch lands, dual lands, and artifact acceleration. Um, It's kind of ironic now that Legacy is, if as expensive, if not more expensive than Vintage was at the time that Star City Games abandoned the Power Nine series. Um, And and again, so the the price of Legacy deck lists in Chaz Chaz's article were almost four grand. For legacy decks Mm -hmm. and i was messaging him on twitter i said i'd love to see an update of that now and he said he'll do he'll do an update but he thinks that the prices are 30 to 40 percent higher now than they were four months ago
0: well sure just a few individual cards like the revised duels and the fetches you mentioned just those cards alone would probably account for that increase
1: Right, right. I mean, and, and this just goes to show you that at some point, legacy is going to hit that wall if it hasn't already. Um, and then this is what I this is what I wrote about in 2010, and, and what Titus touches on in his book. But these are the building blocks of the format, and you can't have a four thousand dollar or a three thousand. You you can't require. You know, if underground Seas are three hundred dollars revised, that's and then that's just that's you know <laughs> more than Moxon were you know five, six, seven years ago.
0: It is incredible.
1: Star City Games is going to seem has expressed an intent to continue to support Legacy, but you wonder, given the huge shift in support to Modern that Wizards is giving, at some point, you know, at some point, maybe not a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, but at some point, one wonders if Star City Games will begin shifting some of those Sundays uh, in their series to to Modern as well, and, and what effect that will have on the Legacy format. It seems to me that, it, that Legacy and Vintage are, really have the same ultimate fate.
0: <laughs> I was just going to use that exact expression. Legacy and Vintage will share the same fate, just on a slightly different scale.
1: Right, but but it raises even larger questions, you know, for modern that's not so constrained by the reserve list. If these prices are out of control, what does that mean for wizards? And to what extent will they produce reprints that can have a meaningful effect on deflating prices? You know, to what extent can a reprint policy target, uh, or you know, a policy of, of targeting reprints create targeted deflation on certain cards? Is it feasible? Does it? Create bubbles in other areas. There's just a host of questions that um, the magic's going to now, you know, the game is. They're just going to have to confront. It's just growing, you know, 25% per annum. You can't, you can't. I mean, at 20, at that kind of growth levels, cards printed three years ago are now in shortage, in short supply. Um, you know, and if and if you really want to make modern, and as I think Wizards does, a perennial, long-term format, they're going to have to figure out how to balance that because Modern Masters certainly had no effect. In terms of decreasing the, the prices for these staples.
0: Yes, Modern Masters was a member of the old guard in terms of their reprint mentality, which is do no harm, basically. And as such, it did no, it did not help the key cards that needed help. Now, there's, you could say, from a logical standpoint, that we don't know what would have happened to the price of Dark Confidant or Tarmogoyf if Modern Masters had never existed. Right. So I would grant that it would be potentially higher. Yeah, yeah, I think by definition be higher. But the real point is that it did not help reduce the increase. It did not level those prices off. They continued to rise.
1: Right. They they continued to rise.
0: And so you have to believe that reprinting a card for a purpose like that, which they use the code word availability, and the rest of us use the code word price.
1: Right. Well, well, those are
0: the same. Well, okay. That that's my point is that they are the same thing they will you will never catch Aaron Foresight using the word price about right, their goals right, for reprints right. that's my point right. but regardless if reprinting was designed to stem the tide of increased price they failed modern masters failed at that now it failed for the best possible reason i think which is the exceeding popularity of that format and if if your point about the Continued growth continues, then, in one sense, wizards can really do no wrong <laughs> because right. if the format continues to grow as the prices rise, well, then you know, oh no, please don't throw me into that briar patch. But um, at some point, the growth will stop.
1: It has to slow, yeah, right? and it has to...
0: and then they will be faced with some difficult decisions i think more difficult
1: it's interesting in the um, there, in wizards reprint policy they sort of explain that they they understand and view the game as a game of skill and and therefore they want to make available cards that are important to the formats that they heavily support i'm paraphrasing but you can look at it um, if if they really are serious about making modern again a perennial format it raises the fundamental question can they implement a policy of targeted deflation on certain cards like fetch land. And, and one concern is so let's say that they reprint fetch lands and they have you know some ballpark target you know obviously they're not going to talk about price but let's say they it has an effect on deflating the price you could actually create bubbles in other cards so for example by lowering the price of fetch lands you would actually increase the you would have a shift in demand along the demand curve so pe- more people want fetchlands because more pe- because they would think that moderns more accessible, but that could actually lead to increases, greater increases in prices for other ma- modern cards. Definitely. Because so so the, what happens is is you lower the price of fetchlands, you create you know the rising tide a rising tide and you you create um, higher prices for other key staples. So then what happens then? Does Wizards come in and then reprint those staples, or how do they decide which ones to reprint and, and what uh you know and how dramatically. You, dramatic but also not just what cars they print but in what format do they reprint them do they do it in base sets Do they do it in expansion sets or do they do it in specialty sets Mm -hmm. like Modern Masters or, you know, Commander or whatever? Now that Wizards has – one of the things that that, that makes Magic so much different today than a decade ago is that Wizards has so many more avenues for uh, printing cards than they used to have. You know, Randy Bueller once famously said, I believe it was him, R&D would have to be hit by a bus before they'd ever reprint Mana Drain. But that was at a time when reprinting Mana Drain would mean that Mana Drain would be legal and standard.
0: yeah. Famously quoted for all the wrong reasons.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, Mana Drain is not on the reserve list. Yep. So it could actually be reprinted these
0: days. Yeah. And anyone who uses that as an example of why Mana Drain will never be printed simply doesn't understand the issues at hand. But I I think the, (laughs) the people who cling to that particular quote are diminishing rapidly.
1: Yeah. so let, let's get on to the the main topic of the day we could we could spend all day talking about uh, issues of price and accessibility and availability but um, these are things that, that wizards going to really have to focus in on especially if they if they want to continue to grow modern but they certainly have ramifications for our formats and we'll keep a close watch on them.
0: we will let's talk tactics
1: Okay, Kevin. So let's begin by defining the term. What is a cantrip?
0: Cantrip is a a term lovingly pulled from, uh, I I guess I could just call it magical lore, as in fantasy magic, about a a magical smell that has a small effect. And it was chosen by R&D way back around the time of Ice Age, I believe, to describe cards that have a modest effect but also draw you a card to replace themselves.
1: That's right. Ice Age was the first set to formally introduce the cards known as cantrips, and they were they were built throughout the set. It was one of the. It's not a keyword, but it was a, uh, a an intentional design in the format. Of course, most of the cantrips at the time had a had delayed draw.
0: <laughs> right, you drew on the next turn's upkeep back in the day.
1: These days, we just we have a, a broader view of what cantrips are, um, and so for Eternal purposes, we're talking about a few key cards such as...
0: Looking at Brainstorm, Ponder, and Preordain, two of which are on our Vintage Restricted list.
1: But those are the biggies. Um, cantrips that used to be played in, in, in these formats were cards like, like uh, Sleight of, slide of Hand used to be a big one, and to a lesser extent, cards like Optin, Portin.
0: Mm-hmm. And in Vintage context, the original R&D use of the word cantrip has become pretty watered down. There are very few cards in Vintage that see play that just draw you a card in addition to some other effect.
1: Right, but, like a peak, <laughs> Yeah,
0: or uh, Ice is the one example I can think of on a very short list of cards that see play for that kind of behavior. But these three big, important cards for Vintage and Legacy are, are played almost entirely for their, their ability to find you specific cards, to smooth out draws that have too much of one resource, not enough of another, that kind of thing. They're used to add consistency to your deck
1: that's right in the early game they help you dig up land or additional land or disruption depending on what you need most uh, in the mid game they they help you find sort of uh, strategic parts or disruption in the late game they can be used to dig up singletons with top deck tutors uh, or or just find key spells shuffling through things like land that you don't need they're really sort of the glue that holds together a lot of um, a lot of a lot of uh, eternal decks and eternal decks are designed around them and and so, You know Brian Weissman gets a lot of credit in terms of design theory for creating the concept of card advantage, for naming it, and and actually showing how, from a design perspective, to use uh, to use card advantage to help win games. But I think a person who is at that level of importance, if 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 card advantage is sort of one of the most foundational um, design theories or principles of design in the game of Magic, I think Alan Comer's use of cantrips to create virtual card advantages is a very close second. Um, And the way that he designed his decks with his so-called Turbo Xerox deck, um, which was a predecessor to Grow, was that you build a really light mana base with tons of cantrips. And so I think the formula is basically you can cut a land for every two cantrips um, because if you have a one land hand but you have a cantrip or two, then you're likely to find that that second land so you'll make land drops. But you have greater virtual card advantage because the cantrips mean you're searching through your deck more aggressively. So you have situations in which... Uh, you have basically situationally optimal answers because you know a preordain or a sleight of hand will give you the card you need for the situation, whether it's the land or the force of will. Um, and frankly, I think that uh, legacy decks tend to be, especially legacy blue legacy decks, are designed around Alan Comer's uh, design principles more so than even Weissman. It's so fundamental to eternal deck design, um, and cantrips are really part of the crux of that.
0: Because legacy players have the luxury of playing with four of any of these three cards, their implementations right. are slightly different in that format. And right. vintage power curve in terms of the utility of any one card in your library being dramatically different potentially also informs how we play them differently in vintage sometimes.
1: That's right. And, and Cantrips weren't a part of a huge part of the early game. For two reasons: one, there weren't cantrips until Ice Age, and there weren't that many, so brainstorm was printed at Ice Age. But it wasn't really until Onslaught's Fetchlands that cantrips became so useful, especially brains. Because in the case of brainstorm, without—I mean, frankly—if you go back and look at Type One decks, brainstorm was very rarely played. It would be maybe like a two of in a prosperity deck, or you know, here or there. But brainstorm was not ubiquitous until. Fetchlands came in, and then it became a potent engine. I think it was Adrian Sullivan, who many years ago wrote a wonderful article on Singletons, making the point that in a deck with four Brainstorms and the number of Fetchlands, and I think in his deck he had Intuition AK, Draw Engine, he could reliably find a one-of in a 60-card deck by turn three or four, just through the Brainstorm, Fetchland, you know, cantrip uh, engine. Just the sheer search capacity.
0: And it's for that reason... Primarily that we are not allowed to play with four Brainstorms or Ponders in Vintage anymore.
1: And, and that Preordain has certainly helped fill some of that gap, but, but that, that's exactly that's exactly right.
0: Steve, let's talk about the rubric that you want to use to analyze these cards.
1: Well, I think the first thing we should do is talk about what decisions each card entail. Let's break these cards into sort of their discrete decision-making decision points. This
0: being our tactical analysis podcast, I think we should start simply with when do you play a card like Brainstorm?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Brainstorm has the advantage over over many of these other cantrips being an instant, um, which means that you can play it at any time at which you have priority. And of course a blue mana to cast it. Um, But Brainstorm is an interesting card because it's not necessarily the card you want to play immediately, which is often the case with, with Climbed or preordained, wouldn't you say?
0: I would agree. And I think that's a particular lesson that legacy players have learned even more so than vintage players, is that simply that Brainstorm is such a powerful tool when combined with a fetch land that in a legacy game that is going to go maybe a few turns longer than a vintage game, Brainstorm is a super powerful reset for your hand, basically, on turns three plus. Where it can find you in conjunction with a fetch land, it can find you maybe three brand new action cards to to reassert yourself in a in the mid game.
1: Right. So brainstorm really, you know, let's just focus on brainstorm for the moment. Brainstorm really requires three decisions. First, you need to decide when to play it. Second, you need to decide which cards you want to put back on top of your library. And third, and this is a more subtle and often overlooked aspect of Brainstorm, you have to decide which order to put the cards back in. Um, the general way that I approach Brainstorm, at least with respect to the second and third decisions, is you generally put back the cards that are least immediately useful, and in general, you put them back in the in, in that same order. So the least useful card being the card you bottom you put second from the top. But that's not always the case.
0: That decision is heavily influenced by whether or not you have immediate access to a fetch land.
1: That's right. And, and whether you want to hide a particular card for a particular reasons. So you yeah. might be setting something up. That's right. So that for, so for example, you know next turn, you know, you want to hide you want to hide a card from maybe say a duress effect or or something like that or even a Vendillion click. But you know that the top card you're going to want to use first before you get to the second card.
0: Hand disruption is not—it's not universal in vintage, but it is, I think, on a bit of an upswing between the two cards you mentioned. Thoughtseize and Vendillion Click are both—they're to be expected in a in a mid to large size vintage tournament these days. Oh, right. also, sorry, I. Should not forget the omnipresent cobalt therapy in dredge.
1: Yeah, cobalt therapy is certainly played in dredge, um, and, and dredge is a really good example of where you might want to say put a yixlid jailer two cards down. There's also gataxian probe, which if you're facing a combo deck, mm. you may want to be hiding, you know, your fluster storm, you know, on after a turn one brainstorm the second card down.
0: Very good point. Going back, though, to when you play your Brainstorm, I, I sometimes loathe drawing Brainstorm in my opening hand, especially if I'm playing a control deck, right. because it's such a precious commodity, right. the power and the utility of Brainstorm, that it is not maximally used on the first turn of a game, especially especially if you don't yet have access to a fetch land, Because right. Brainstorm on turn one, just to find better cards, perhaps is a real gambit in certain cases when you're locking yourself out of controlling your draws for the next two turns.
1: That's exactly right. I think one of the most fundamental differences between Brainstorms and other cantrips, and one of the earliest lessons that that people who play blue decks in Vintage learn, is that if you have a one-land hand in a Brainstorm, you might want to wait a turn to get one more draw to play Brainstorm, because it's, it's a fairly simple uh, sequence Sequential analysis here. If you play brainstorm and fail to hit the second land, you're going to be dead in the water. Um, mm-hmm. And so right. the risks of failing to hit justify uh, delaying playing brainstorm, even though that means less access to fresh and perhaps better cards now, um, just to, just to give you a better chance of hitting another land. Um, so. It's often the right play to um, to wait to draw a second a second card on turn two. You know, if it's another if it's a land, great, then go ahead and play the Brainstorm. But then that also means uh, um, that, uh, again, uh, to your point, Kevin, um, you know, playing a land and then playing a fetch land means that you get to maximize your virtual card advantage generated by Brainstorm because you get to put back the two cards you want the least and shuffle them away. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think the most extreme example of what we're talking about is the coveted and often maligned end-of-turn brainstorm, especially on turn one. And I think, right. again, I think this is an area that legacy players have internalized very well, and that is, for all the reasons you just mentioned, Steve, you you really do want to seriously consider postponing your brainstorm till turn two or later, but... If you're going to if you've decided that you're going to play Brainstorm on turn 1, it is almost well, it is very frequently the right thing to do to play it on your first main phase in vintage especially due to the dramatic explosive mana that we have access to and spending just doing the the old school natural wait as long as you can on instance kind of mentality and playing it on your opponent's end step, you'll frequently find that you draw into things that you'd wish you'd known about on your first turn.
1: Right, right. Uh, you know, I, I'm just thinking about how different it used to be when brainstorm was unrestricted. Um, and, and also, when you played, when, when in vintage you'd play decks with like intuition and AK, mm-hmm. because you would often use brainstorm to put back uh, um, the second accumulated knowledge, so that you would be assured to intuition for three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sort of situation, there's a lot more value in playing brainstorm more aggressively. But in a format where you only have one brainstorm. Uh, you know, the EOT brainstorm on turn one is is probably rarely going to be the best use of your brainstorm. Um, it, it's often better to at least wait a turn to try and get a fetch land, and then maybe use it on your opponent's second end step um, to try and get that. If you if you still want to maximize the amount of mana you have open on your main phase, that's a better time. So I think that the two the two key times to use brainstorm that you are in your opponent's end step second turn later, and then in your main phase, just in the way you described.
0: Mm-hmm. There are, of course, certain scenarios in which you would want to play turn one Brainstorm. One of the simplest ones is if you have mock Sapphire, and a Fetchland. Right. That is a very good use
2: for a turn one right. Brainstorm. Right.
1: Another similar example, that's that's definitely the case. Another example would be if you have, say, an underground sea or in in a vampiric tutor or uh, another top deck tutor, you may want to, um, you know, you might want to say vamp for Black Lotus and brainstorm into it on turn one so you can do other things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's sometimes another another use. Um, and then and then another reason to play Brainstorm um, on Turn 1 is if your opponent plays Turn 1 Duress or, or Turn 1 Thoughtseize. You may have something really valuable in hand you just want to hide on top of your deck. That's totally legitimate.
0: Definitely. And also I find that I have no qualms playing Turn 1 Brainstorm if I'm playing a, a Turn 1 or 2 combo deck. If I'm playing Burning Tendrils, for example, Turn 1 Brainstorm is, is no kind of concern for me especially since it will frequently frequently lead to a turn to kill.
1: Right. Another reason to delay playing Brainstorm is if you have a Gush in hand, because if you can set up Gush Brainstorm, then the two lands that you Gush to hand can be returned with Brainstorm for really explosive card advantage.
0: So how would that game play out in the early well, game?
1: Well, you'd play, a bit, roughly speaking, turn one land, turn two land, turn three, Gush, and then Brainstorm.
0: Ah, there you go. Such that you can replay one of those lands, still managed to put extra lands back with Brainstorm possibly shuffling them away. Exactly. Yep.
1: In, in the ideal case, you'd have a fetch land there. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, by that point, it seems very reasonable that you would in any modern Gush deck. So let's dive in, I think, then on what you put back. You oh, encapsulated yeah. it earlier in terms of basically chronology, what card is going to be the least useful soon. You put that up first, and then on top of that, you put something that might be useful sooner, That's pretty rudimentary, but also highly difficult to assess in context, even for seasoned players.
1: Right. So, just setting aside the kinds of cards that you want to safely hide, I think there are generally three categories of cards that you put on top. You put on top situational tactics like Hercule's Recall that, you know, that, that may be completely useless in a particular matchup or near useless. You put back, I think, really um, like weak finishers like a Tendrils of Agony or more importantly, a, dark, a Blightsteel Colossus is a really good card to put back. hmm. Um, and I think another, you know, the other class of cards you put back is excess land. So mm-hmm. those are the three general cards that I tend, I tend to put back. And there's certainly a lot of subtleties involved.
0: I think you uh, touched on another category of cards, and that with the AK example, and that are those are cards that function best when they're in your library. Right. Uh, AK is not so very like common these days, but particular it's, lands it's, are in that category due to fetch land mana bases.
1: Yeah, yeah. so it's it's very often the case that you will brainstorm back a a land on top that you immediately fetch out.
0: (laughs) Oh yes, and that's exactly the kind of scenario I was thinking of. Especially in gush decks, a deck featuring a fast bond, for example, there will occasionally be scenarios where you land an early fast bond but cannot win. Uh, Maybe you had fast bond plus one gush, but your first gush didn't draw you into the victory. So you end up playing a multi-turn game with fast on in play and those games frequently devolve into having many of your lands in play for various reasons that's right And it's a very valuable tool to draw a gush partway through that game, uh, pick up two of your islands, because there's no reason not to, with other fetch lands remaining in play, but having no other islands left in your library. At which point Brainstorm, or Jace the (laughs) Mind Sculptor, of course, allows you a way to put a land back into your library, fetch it out at no loss of value to yourself, and get the extra value of the shuffle, which you wanted all along. Right. Obviously, right. many of these analyses dovetail directly with Chase the Mind Sculptor, which is pretty common. So, there are frequently ways to get multiple brainstorm effects in a game, but we'll, we don't need to belabor that point.
1: So, one of the classes of cards I talked about were sort of finishers like Tendrils or light steel, but certainly you would add Oath finishers to that. I mean, brainstorm mm-hmm. is really really important in Oath decks, because it's the only card, it's the only cantrip that actually puts cards from your hand into the library. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are cards that there are cards in Magic that transfer cards from almost any zone to another, but there's very few cards that can put cards from your hand into your library as efficiently as Brainstorm. Vendillion Click can do it if you can Vendillion Click yourself, but Brainstorm is just so much better for that. And of course, if you're playing an Oath deck, you're not playing with Vendillion Click. So... <laughs> Um, There's especially critical there.
0: There really isn't any deck that throws into relief the differences of these cantrips better than Oath, is there?
1: Uh, I think Gush decks sometimes do, but oh, oh between the different cantrips. Yes, That's right. among them. Yes. <laughs> well, it especially highlights. The, I mean, while all these cantrips—and this is a, a critical point—while all these cantrips serve the same general functions that I outlined at the beginning of the conversation, they each have their own particular uses, and this is this is one that's um, underscored for brainstorm. In fact, there's one other thing I should mention with respect to that, and that is, um, while all the cantrips, especially ponder, can be useful for things like triggering delver of secrets or c- you're minimizing life loss when flipping with dark confidant, brainstorm is especially useful with those with those two cards.
0: Yes, unfortunately, uh, I've been burned a number of times by brainstorming in the midgame with a uh, G- uh, dark confidant-based control deck. And either subsequently playing or forgot that I had in play a dark confidant. And then on your next upkeep, you flip over that whatever card that you put on top. And it doesn't matter what it is. The point is we've we've all kind of been there before where that card that costs two or three or four mana is right on top of a land. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you 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 know you internally smack yourself in the forehead. Uh, I think it goes without saying that Dark Confidant is one of those key interactions with Brainstorm specifically, but also with Ponder that
1: you know it's it's funny you mention that because I remember playing at the 2008 vintage championship and LSV was standing behind me watching me play and I I was I lost a game in which I had dark confidant in play and brain and I had vamp and I and if I had vamp for brainstorm I could have won the, that turn and won the game uh and I mean I was playing for top I played I made it to almost top eight. I was playing for top eight in the last round against Paul, but I would have, I think I would have won that match and I would have definitely made top eight. So I've, I've had a a dumb mistake like that before. It's especially embarrassing because LSV was watching me play. Um, (laughs) But, but um, another example is this actually gets to the third decision point, which is how do you stack the cards that you return? And both Delver of Secrets and Dark Confidant might mean that you sort of go against the general rule of thumb. So the general rule of thumb is you place the cards in order from most important to least important, um, assuming both cards are already sort of generally least important. That's not true with respect to Delver or Dark Confidant. You might, you might stack them in a different way simply to, to, to get the most benefit from those cards.
0: And I think Oath falls in that category as well. For sure. If yeah. if you are in the the what's the word I'm looking for? If you're in the enjoyable position of having Oath of Druids in play, it's about to go active and you have Brainstorm and you have Gristlebrand <laughs> in your hand yep. or on your deck, then what cards you put above Gristlebrand are those that you want to dispose of basically. You want those to go into your graveyard before Gristlebrand enters play. That's a key interaction in addition to those that you listed. And also, uh-huh. I would also point out that there's a key interaction too with regard to fetch lands and what you mentioned earlier about situational cards, like one, Hercule's Recall. I think it's pretty common if you have access to a fetch land and you brainstorm into situational cards that don't have an immediate use but could dramatically change in utility upon your opponent's next turn. It's a good idea to put those cards on top of your library, keep your fetch land at the ready, and then if it comes to pass that you need that Hercules because they played Tinker, you have it. And if they didn't and you don't, then you can go ahead and use your fetch land. That's a way to keep kind of a virtual tutor on tap that you can control with your fetch land.
1: That's right. How many, you know, in decks that have fetched land? how many times after Brainstorm, or what percentage of the time, would you say you, you eventually draw that second card? <laughs> not, not very often, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, I would say it's... The, the, the numbers are skewed by Gush decks, I think, because Gush tends to draw through a bunch of cards after Brainstorm has set something up. But yeah, I would say that uh, in general that second card, if you play correctly and you're prepared, is frequently never seen again.
1: Yeah, at least not for a little while. Mm-hmm.
0: No, not when you need you know, it, or not until you the, need it.
1: In the, It occurs to me in terms of hiding cards, I mean, often you hide Tinker and Yogmas will, but In the um, 2007 Vintage Championship Finals, I played against Rich Shea, and I think I played a turn one Brainstorm. And I had Ancestral Recall in my hand, and I hid the Ancestral on top instead of playing it on turn one. Um, And that actually ended up being the right play, because Rich played a turn one Duress against me, um, and that allowed me to next turn Duress him, stripping his force, and then resolving my Ancestral. And I'm pretty sure I won the game, and potentially the Vintage Championship, because I use brainstorm to hide ancestral on top of my library. That's a
0: pretty sick read. Did you know he was playing duress?
1: Yeah, we were we were both playing grow, and I knew. I think we both had four duresses. All
0: right. Well, that's one of those situations where brainstorm is. I mean, that kind of situation is one where brainstorm uses almost all of its roles at once, <laughs> <laughs> fixing your draw and hiding cards, and ultimately ensuring that you resolve ancestor recall. I mean, that's that's just a little bit of everything right there. Yeah. I would say there's one other use case that was that occurred to me as you mentioned that, and that is in a combo deck that involves draw sevens, Brainstorm plays a unique role as well because sometimes there is an interaction of a given draw seven and your own Brainstorm that you can control and get maximal effect out of. Right. Two most common examples are Wheel of Fortune and Memory Jar, and they're dramatically different examples. Because with Wheel of Fortune, if you're playing Brainstorm before Wheel, which sometimes you do out of necessity, um, and sometimes you do just because that's the three cards allow you to play Wheel, what you're putting back is going into your future hand. I mean, this turns future hand of seven cards, and you can keep in your existing hand cards you don't want. That seems pretty clear. With memory jar though, it's it can get even trickier, especially oh, yes. especially if you don't know uh, yes. well h- what your opponent has in the midst of the jar, and sometimes sometimes leading off with a brainstorm after you've activated your own memory jar and drawn your new hand a, can be very very skill testing.
1: That's a wonderful example of where brainstorm becomes really situationally critical because it's the exact opposite of the general rule, mm-hmm. which is where. You- where you want to actually put back your best cards and you have to be very careful in which order you put
0: and it, it every little aspect of do you expect to win the game this turn did your opponent draw into counter magic or some such uh, how right, much so do you do hedge put, on putting valuable cards back etc
1: so much so much involved there
0: oh and what? if and if you're going to resolve oath this turn then the cards you put back take on a different meaning as well
1: well, I think, I think we should turn to, to Ponder, which is uh, a fascinating and, and, I think, underappreciated cantrip in its own right. Um, but in the process, I think we'll continue to draw on comparisons and juxtapose it with brainstorm.
0: Now, Ponder, like Preordain, is a sorcery, so obviously we're only playing this on our own turn. So what other kind of considerations are there in terms of when you play it?
1: Well, we know you can only play it on one of your main phases, as you point out. But I think Ponder is especially useful as a turn one play, um, because because um, not only does it see three cards, but if, they, if they're no good, you, you get to shuffle them away without needing an additional shuffle effect. So I Whereas with Brainstorm, you tend to want to sort of wait to play Brainstorm. I think Ponder is best best earlier on.
0: Because it has the shuffle built in, you're never going to get locked into two bad draws if you don't want to. There are some exceptions to that. Some weird things can happen. You can misjudge the situation and leave three on top that turn out to not be good, etc., etc., But the fact that there's a built-in failsafe means that you can be very aggressive with it and not be punished, except for in really corner cases.
1: That's right, and and, and uh, that's that's one reason I'm such a huge fan of Ponder. Of course, the the problem with Ponder is is that, um, you know, if you like one or two of the cards you might be stuck with the third card you don't we'll we'll get into that in a minute but but um but that i think general concern is a reason to be careful in timing ponder and we can discuss sort of rules of thumb but i before we do that, I want to point out one one thing, and that's that Ponder actually entails more decisions than Brainstorm, aside from the fact that it's a sorcery, and you can play Brainstorm any time. In terms of the mechanics of the card, it entails more decisions, because Brainstorm, you have to decide which two cards to put back, and whether in which the order of those two cards. Whereas there are actually, um, first with Ponder, you have to decide whether to keep those three cards or shuffle, and then you have to decide how to order each of those cards. And there are six different possibilities in terms of ordering the top of your deck. So there's a lot more decision-making involved.
0: Certainly there is. And also... (laughs) there's another hidden, not hidden so much as subtle, uh, decision about the randomness of the shuffle plus draw. Right. It's kind of implied by what you just said, but the simple truth is, is that you are getting access to a fourth card. That fourth card is a mystery. You need to have a very comfortable understanding in your deck and in this situation whether or not a random card from your deck that isn't necessarily one of these three is superior to any one of those three. And lots of times that situation is made for you. It's obvious. You ponder into three lands when you need action, that kind of thing. But more often than not, your three cards that you're looking at are very comparable to one random card, and it's very skill-testing as to which choice you make.
1: That's right. So the decision of whether to keep or not, or or shuffle... um... Can really be a complicated because it's not just an evaluation of the cards that you're seeing, but an evaluation of an unknown or a Rumsfeldian unknown or known unknown. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and like with brainstorm, ponder gets better when you have access to a fetch land. But as we've already That's- said, it's not necessary. But I'm sure any of our uh, listeners and you have certainly done, Steve, that you ponder on uh, the first turn using, say a, um, let's use Oath as an example, you ponder on the first turn, and you find one uh, juicy card, for example, maybe an accelerant that you needed to further your plans, one inconsequential card, a second copy of something you already had, perhaps, and one card that you don't want to draw in a million years, like, say, Gristlebrand.
1: Right. Whether you shuffle or not will somewhat depend on whether there's either a shuffle effect in the the card you see, or in hand, or in play. Mm Mm-hmm. So in this case the fact that there's a fetch land in there means it's more likely that you'll probably you'll probably keep those cards because you want the first card and there's the fetch land in the second.
0: That's very common I think.
1: I think you know there're basically three reasons why I shuffle. One is that it's turn one, and I need a land, and there's not a land in the top three. so I'll, And that's very common in both Gush and combo decks. A second reason is because the cards are all really bad. <laughs> so those are two really sort of easy answers. But a third reason is it's, it's sometimes the case that one of the cards is okay, you know, that I could use it right now, but the other two cards are just generally weak. So it's not that all the cards are bad, but that most of the cards are bad. <laughs> and then I sort of feel like not... So it's, you know, in fact, it might even be the case the third card that I think is okay is probably better than the card I'm going to get off the shuffle, but it means I also don't... I'm not forced to draw those other two cards. So when making the decision of whether to keep or to shuffle, you don't don't always necessarily sort of view each of the cards in comparison to a random card, but you have to also calculate the cost of being compelled to to draw these other two worst cards.
0: Also, many of the exceptions... To the rules that you listed for Brainstorm apply to Ponder, since you are stacking the top two cards of your deck. So the Presence of Dark Confidant, Oath of Druids, Delver of Secrets, Memory Jar, these things all come into play in a similar, basically the same manner. But yeah. but also, if you have access to other cantrips, like you frequently do with Ponder or Brainstorm, though that being preordained, then... Pre- or ponder's risks go down to nearly zero. <laughs> right. I, and I know I might be jumping the gun here, but when you have access to ponder and preordain, and say one blue mana on turn one, which order do you choose to play them in?
1: Well, to answer that question, let's let's analyze preordain. Preordain has less digging power than Ponder, but it compensates with superior selectivity. Um, Ponder is, in a sense, an all-or-nothing proposition. You have to keep the cards, albeit one is put in the hand, or shuffle them all away. So I think we can create a simple scenario where we sort of think about you know, what Preordain does. Preordain has the same selection uh, decision criteria as Ponder in terms of you can only play it on your main phase. But instead of having a shuffle choice, the only choice with Ponder is whether to bottom both cards or bottom one card or bottom none. That's it. So suppose the top three cards are A, B, C. There are four possibilities with respect to both Ponder or Preordain in terms of the mixture of cards you may wish to keep and the cards you may wish to to put back or or keep uh, a rather... on the bottom one you want to keep all three cards two you want to keep two of the three cards three you want to keep one of the three cards or four you want to bottom all three cards Mm -hmm. in cases one and four ponder is better because you get to you have the choice of shuffling all three cards or keeping all three um in the other two cases preordain or ponder may be better depending um so there are there are a couple way a couple other ways of slicing this up. One way of doing it is, and this is a binary. And granted, cards don't fit into a binary, but we could say with respect to the top three cards that we either love or we hate them. If you love two of the cards and hate one of the cards, ponder or Preordain could be better, depending. Um, if you let's let's just let's just go through these and work through these, Kevin. Okay, let's let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's suppose that okay just so again if we love 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 or hate 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 ponders better because we can keep all three or shuffle all three and and we can also optimize the order for them especially in the love so if we like the third card the best position c we can put that into our hand immediately so that leaves open the rest of the situation so let's start with love love hate which card do you think is better in that situation
0: and Love, Love, Hate, I consider Ponder to be superior because while both Ponder and Preordain give you access to both cards, Ponder gives you the information about the third card. Right. So you can choose the order, you can choose which one you draw in both cases, but with Ponder, you know what that third card coming is, and with Preordain, you do not.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. because if you if you love the first two cards, you're gonna see them all of them with ponder and preordain, but that extra bit of information gives Ponder the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, the let's go with the situation in which you hate, hate, love to the opposite.
0: Well in that situation, preordain's better, assuming that the kind of card you hate is the kind of card you want on the bottom of your library. Right. Because Ponder will let you draw the card you love, but it at the cost of keeping the next two being cards you hate. You don't, you don't want to do that in many, many situations. Preordain is at its best there.
1: I, I completely agree. I think this is the situation, hate, hate, love, that Preordain is the best. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to bracket this example so we can circle back to it, back to it, because I think it there's a design question there as well. Mm-hmm. That what kinds of decks are you more likely to find this this equation? This okay, so let's go to um, let's go to love hate love. So in love hate love,
0: preordained does not let you access the third card. Right. That is, I'm sorry, that is to say, it doesn't let you know about the third card. Right. So it presents you with a love hate, in which case you are almost frequently likely to put the love card on top, the hate card on bottom, draw the love card and the third love card would be there for you to draw next turn.
1: Your next your next draw.
0: Yeah. I believe that Ponder is going to leave you in the situation where you draw the two, one of the two love cards that is better. So that yes. is an advantage, leaving the next one on top, presumably. But then there's that third card, which is the card you don't want lingering there. So in this situation, I think it's very contextual. With Preordain, you get both the love cards and not the hate. Right. With ponder, oh, but you don't get to choose the order that you get them. You get the right, first right. love card so and then the second one. So yeah. they both have the advantage. So it, it depends on the qualitative situation of whether or not both those love cards are needed for you to win, or if either one of them will do that kind of thing.
1: Right. So if you, if you see love, love, hate, love, and the third card is well, it could it could actually matter. So for example, what if you know um, what if you see like time vault and a card you don't like and then key. You know, whether you love that card may depend on, whether, on your ability to see the third card. So that's another factor in favor of... Oh, absolutely.
0: And in many, many games, uh, encountering that combination with Preordain is going to mean putting both the first two cards on the bottom. Because bottom. you don't want one half of Key Vault.
1: So I don't, I don't I don't think we can make a clear conclusion as to what's better in that situation. But I, I, there are certainly advantages for for ponder and one advantage I think for preordain, yeah. which is being able to bottom that that one card.
0: And I think that is one example also where you need to take a a close look at your deck and to consider what kind of combinations of three cards you're likely to see in your deck, because right. if cards you love in your deck are all very homogenous like in a Rug deck or, uh, I don't know, Landstill would be a good example, although they don't play with Preordain. But if, if all your cards are very homogenous, the two cards you love are, are Mana Drain versus Mental Misstep. You know, those two cards are very closely tied in function, right. as opposed to a very diverse deck like, say, Burning Tendrils. Where the one card is Black Lotus and the other one is Oath of Druids. Right. You might right. love both those cards, but you need them at dramatically different times. That's right. Yeah.
1: Uh, hate, love, love is logically equivalent. Yes, it is. Um, so that leaves just two two possible scenarios left. So there are eight possible permutations uh, of this. The the last the next to last is love hate hate, which is logically equivalent to hate love hate. So mm-hmm. let's just handle them both. So let's say you love hate hate, which is better?
0: Love hate hate. Well. With Preordain, you get access to the Love card immediately, and the second Hate card, you're going to draw it next turn. With Ponder, you get access to the Love card immediately, and you have two Hate cards sitting on top, which is... a scenario you might shuffle away unless the love card is good enough to win you the game right then and there
1: right right so it, it, this again this binary yeah is an imperfect me- method of evaluating or comparing these two cards but it is it is does give us some insight and one of the reasons it's imperfect is because again it love may be inadequate to describe <laughs> the card that wins the game the i love all
0: my cards steve <laughs> 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 I'm sure you do. <laughs> yes, you're completely right. It. And I think one of the one of the ways in which you can tease apart that example is simply do you expect the game to continue beyond that first card or that second card? If the game's right. going to go long, Preordain has the advantage just by minimizing the cards you didn't want to draw down right. to one. If the game is going to end right away, then, then Ponder is superior in that it just gave you maximal information and allowed you to make your choice.
1: Right. You know, but there are, there are cases in which, you know, like, not just win the game, but... I would keep a love hate hate if it if you're searching for a particular kind of card. Like for example, you have an oath in play, mm-hmm. and all you need is to find is the orchard. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it doesn't really matter that the other two cards are garbage <laughs> because you're gonna you're gonna oath those things away.
0: As frequently uh, happens in vintage, one card can render the rest of them more or less irrelevant.
1: I think it's interesting though that, as imperfect as this sort of setup is, it shows that there are. Clear cases in which I think there are in, in terms of all the cases, ponder is clearly better in at least two of the eight, and, and preordain is probably only clearly better in one of the eight. Yep. And there, and ponder probably has the edge in in the remainder. Um,
0: in general, I think it's a pretty clear general rule that seeing more cards or having access to more cards is more powerful than than preordain's additional ability to put cards at the bottom of your deck versus shuffle or 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 order them that is right. putting cards all the way to the bottom is preordain's primary advantage but it is yeah. not as good as simply looking at more cards which ponder offers ponder can be generally better when the third card is something you love and you didn't hate the first two so if so uh, love hate love or hate love love yeah. ponder's yeah. better because it not only gets you to a card that you want, but it also gives you a selection amongst cards that you want in a way that Preordain would not have done.
1: And this simple comparison also completely ignores the the possibility of the fourth card that you see with Ponder. Yes. That's that's complete, that's not even calculated in here. Yes, in Um, in
0: many uh, hate-hate-love kind of situations, Ponder is just going to allow you to look at that fourth card.
1: I was going to say, there seems to be this general perception, though, that in sort of slow grindy control decks, Preordain is often Preferred, so I, I sometimes see decks that have preordain but no ponder, and I'm puzzled because according to the analysis we just conducted, ponder just seems like a better card. I mean, there is a reason ponder is restricted and preordain is not. So, what would make you want to play preordain and, and not over over a, a first ponder?
0: Over a first ponder, it's a tough case to make. But I think one of the last examples we came up with was where where I said that the situation that benefits Preordain is if the game is going to go beyond all the cards you're looking at. So in that sense, I can understand why players would gravitate toward Preordain if they're building a deck that's intended to not end the game quickly.
1: Right. If you have a lot of situational cards, then preordained selection without compelling you to draw. So I guess if you have a deck where you really don't want to draw a card, um, that, that selection ability may give preordain a stronger contextual edge. And
0: ironically, if you want to remain flexible, which I think is another way of saying what you're saying, then preordain doesn't lock you into choices as far in the future either. Right, right. Which might be... But- that might be overstated as compared to Ponder, but there are certainly situations where in order to survive you need one of the three cards. Maybe it's a situational answer, as you said. Maybe it's the light yeah, the then, lightning then bolt. Some, but in letters. order to have that card, you're locking your next two turns in.
1: That's right. That's right. So then preordain would be better in, in some of those cases. Yeah. I I don't ten, ten tend to think though that in any case in which two of at least two of the three cards are cards that you like and, and love, then, then Ponder is generally better. But, um, yeah. it, it, and Pure Dane shines in, in situations in which you, you hate two of the cards, uh, but love one because of that selection. And, and again, the example in which Pyrrhoden is strongest is Hate, Hate, Love. But I think that's, that can happen when you have a really brandy control deck where you have lots of situational cards. Mm-hmm. And so the situ, you know you really are looking for the one card that will be useful in this situation, like the Plow or the Hercles or whatever,
0: Ancient Grudge. And by virtue of finding that card, it's going to prolong the game as opposed to end it. I think that's the right. key second half to your sentiment there. In the case right. of Ponder... When the power curve, the power spikes of your deck are very broad, it's a very spiky kind of deck, like Burning Tendrils, then seeing one more card, or possibly two more cards, for Ponder is has far increased power. If that fourth card you see, because you're desperate and you need to go off now, if that fourth card you see is Wheel of Fortune, or the Black Lotus you so desperately need then Ponder is far and away superior, just by raw power of giving you information and access to possibly four cards. Right. So again, as, as we've said some, several times already, go back and look at the kinds of situations your deck puts you in. If your deck set puts you in situations where you need an answer frequently in the early turns, you need that lightning bolt, you need that force of will early on, then maybe Preordain is your yeah. card. If finding those cards is going to prolong the game...
1: Right. But if you right. want to but end the
0: game, then Ponder's... Ponder's your better bet.
1: There's also it's also true that um, just the information has value because in, in, having information means that you can make decisions and do something about it. So if you love the first two cards but hate the third, um, or even you know, uh, I mean, yeah, if you if you love the, f- the first two cards but hate the third, Ponder lets you know it so you can have an opportunity to shuffle it away. So you will use your fetch land in the most efficient way possible.
0: Mm, good point. That's right. Um, which and, and fetch uh, we've we talked at length about fetch lands with regard to brainstorm, but. If you have access to fetch lands, then Ponder goes up in value a lot.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I just keep coming back to the fact that I think that in general, Ponder is better anytime among your top three cards you want to keep two, at least two, then Ponder Ponder just seems like it's generally better. But so it makes you wonder sort of why would you build the deck or what kind of deck would be more likely to have two of the cards you don't want. And I think that's really situationally, you know, slow, grindy control decks.
0: Yeah, I would say that's fair. Preordain hasn't found a home in too many control decks. I remember our friend and teammate Brian DeMars built a, yeah. Preordain, a, a control deck that was a Preordain-based economy shortly after Preordain <laughs> came out, and it had a certain appeal to it, but it definitely fell out of favor with most of the community. It hasn't really come back. Preordain is primarily there in Gush-based decks these days.
1: Well, it sounds like we, we mostly agree, Kevin, on, on where Ponder and Preordain uh, are stronger, and I think we both agree that Ponder is just pretty much the better card.
0: Mm-hmm. I would agree.
1: That wasn't as controversial as I thought it would be.
0: <laughs> you were expecting me to, uh, to put up more of a fight with regard to certain permutations of the top three cards of your deck? I was. I was. Interesting. Well, I think that we could probably get into some more lively debate if we talked about some really specific examples, because if we we brought up the say time uh, key vault i'm sorry example and that can obviously have just critical differences when it comes to whether or not you see two or three cards up front but there are plenty of other more subtle examples especially in a gush based deck which you and i both have a lot of experience with whereby uh, whether or not you even keep certain cards to have access to them is up to player preference it's obviously things like Gushes are somewhat of a no-brainer in a Gush-based deck. They're almost always the right keep when you're evaluating two or three cards on the top of your deck. But then there are plenty of other branching paths that involve things like Vamp Tutor, Demonic Tutor. Uh, right. And totally whether, just yeah, and whether or not you are going to choose a certain, uh, commit to a certain game plan in a certain matchup, sometimes... Sometimes keeping that Lotus Cobra on top, let's say you Preordain on turn one, and they're both good cards. One of them's a Gush, one of them's a Lotus Cobra. Keep the Gush. If you have the second land, you're going to be able to play it on turn two or three. Seems good. Keep the Lotus Cobra. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Let's say you don't have one, but and I'm not saying you should be for or against this in the abstract. What I'm saying is, is that you're choosing your path. Even by one card with Preordain, you're choosing your path, and that's where I think player preference comes into play very heavily, and then all the issues that you and I like to discuss so deeply about understanding your deck, understanding your matchup, understanding your role and your plan, all of those things come to bear when you're choosing a important role-playing card like a Lotus Cobra and a Gush deck on turn one. That's where I think the debates could really come in, and it could get pretty lively. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, those are so situation and context sensitive to try and evaluate. Um, But we could we could come up with some fairly detailed scenarios if we were inclined. Um, But I think think. And if we're not inclined, Steve, who is? (laughs) (laughs) well if our our listeners want to want to submit some scenarios we'll be happy to evaluate them i think i think our analysis so far has suggested some general rules of thumb to keep in mind when playing with these cards and also should inform their deck design
0: yeah i think one of the things i wasn't expecting but emerged from our discussion here is about how the situations that your deck puts you in most frequently really should inform how you play these cards. And I know it kind of smacks of a tautology that how these cards work in your deck is how you should play them. But really it's about understanding the kinds of permutations as you put it, love, love, hate, that kind of thing. Yeah. What kind of situations does your deck most often present you with? And that'll tell you which times to play these cards, what results you should expect, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: And not just and not only does it affect um which of these cards you should use, but also how you should sequence them together. Mm -hmm. So we talked about whether you'd play Ponder or or Brainstorm first. Um, It may be the case, if you're playing an explosive combo deck, that you just want to go turn one Brainstorm. Definitely.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And players of Vintage are almost certainly used to playing Brainstorm because uh, whether you're new or a veteran, you've played with one or four Brainstorms plenty of times already. Ponder, a little less so. Preordain can be pretty niche, but those of you who are playing with Preordain almost inevitably are in, uh, you're going to be contrasting it and making choices in light of Brainstorm and Ponder as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and so elaborate on that point.
0: I just think that the things we've discussed about the sequence that you play them in, especially because you're going to be often confronted with Preordain versus Brainstorm and Preordain versus Ponder. The things we just discussed about the kind of scenarios your deck presents to you, you need to practice with those and internalize the kind of choices you're expected to make. And when I asked you initially if you would play Ponder or Preordain first on turn one, that's a very practiced response at that point.
1: Which would you play first?
0: I like playing Ponder first because... It gives you maximum flexibility and information, and also because even in the worst-case scenarios, Preordain can't undo any of Ponder's drawbacks. Mm -hmm. So you get maximal power seeing three to four cards. If you find yourself in a situation where it's, say, love-hate-hate or love-love-hate, Preordain can be used to mitigate all the potential drawbacks. Yeah. So you you can more safely keep access to, say, situational cards... Uh, in the second or third spot in your library from a ponder. And if it turns out you really don't want them, preordain will let you blow past. Now, you are losing some of the efficacy of preordain in a situation like that. So I can understand where that's, you want to minimize <laughs> that effect as much as you can. But I generally like the safety and consistency that comes from ponder before preordain. Yeah, yeah, and and the potential explosiveness too. You're getting the potential explosiveness with a backup plan.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, Ponder is, is a really strong turn one play. Um, especially, I mean, there are lots of situations, but if you're looking for, like, if you're playing an Oath deck and you want to find an Oath, you know, if you're playing a Control deck, you need to find a Force. Um, you're playing a Gush deck, you need to find a Land. Ponder, Ponder is just better. It digs deeper and therefore is more likely to find the critical card. Um, but you know, there are a few situations in which, you know, Preordain might be, might be better, and also, it should just be mentioned that it's really hard to trigger a Delver or control a, uh, um, Confident. a, a Bob flip. A, yeah, Confidant flip with Preordain because the only way you can do that is if you keep both cards on top. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's literally possible, but you're really diminishing the power of Preordain to do so. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And similarly, if you're playing a Gush combo deck, that deck still does have between four and however many, 10 counters in it in some cases, it's possible, very possible, to fan open an opening hand with a gush deck that has double force in it, maybe double force misstep even. And in those kind of situations, maybe you choose to play the control role. Maybe you choose to play preordained first because you don't have the tools. You're not expecting to be able to go off on turn one or two.
1: So Kevin, um, it's it's interesting that also potential role assignment influences your sequencing here. I think that's that's pretty clear in the case of brainstorm, but less clear in the case of ponder or preordain. So that's I'm glad you, you raised that point. One one last aspect of these cantrips we didn't really we're not going to talk about the probe although it is uh, a played vintage cantrip and important. Um, but how do you interface top deck tutors with cantrips?
0: Well that's
1: You did this in the Vintage Championship this past year.
0: Absolutely I did. And in that case it was Sensei's Divining Top that was doing the work of the cantrip role, but still the same lesson applies. Well, I would say that you mentioned a, one example earlier whereby on turn one you had, say, a mox jet and a land such that you might you might cast vampiric tutor and then brainstorm into the card you tutored for, frequently Black Lotus. Well that's the kind of interaction that you should always be looking out for especially if you're playing a deck with preordain because there are in a preordain deck there are basically six cantrips that are de facto and one or two top deck tutors so the the situation of you having a top deck tutor is frequently uh, overlapped with you having access to a cantrip so that simple vamp tutor for lotus preordained into it is the sort of muscle memory you should just have such that if you have those two cards you can play blue black and get access to three mana it's like the way you turn dark ritual into black lotus sorry (laughs) the way you turn demonic tutor into cabal ritual via black lotus is what i meant Right, And so I think there's just muscle memory to be had there. It's a standard play, in my opinion. But it also does influence, to some small degree, which of your cantrips you play, especially in your early turns, when you have access to multiples.
1: Right. So like, if you have, let's say, a Ponder or Preordain, it just reinforces this. You probably want to play the Ponder first, and then next turn the cantrip and Preordain into it, assuming you can't play... You mean the the top uh, Tutor, tutor. yeah. Yeah, on, on turn one. Yep. So that that's a really good example of of using the cantrip to get the the card to your hand immediately, and but but you're using the the weaker or or the uh, more long
0: term. Yeah, yeah, you're using the the top deck tutor as a stand in for the shuffle effect of a fetch land, but to a different direction to further exactly. your game plan in a different way. And we didn't mention it before, but that is one possible other reason why you would brainstorm on your opponent's end step on turn one, is if you also had access to a top deck tutor. Because then you can be reacting to your opponent's turn one play with your brainstorm to smooth out your draw, potentially draw into alternate answers, but also then manipulate your deck on your upkeep to shuffle away cards you didn't want and get your tutor's benefit. That is one possible use that... Should also, in my opinion, be part of your muscle memory repertoire.
1: That's a great use.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. uh, Top deck tutors factor heavily into the decision making here, just like fetchlands do. They can, in that same way, minimize the drawbacks of many of these cards and maximize their their deck thinning, not deck thinning, deck searching ability.
1: Well, hopefully, we have illuminated some of the critical um, both situational, and more general uses of cantrips and their role in Vintage and Legacy. Um, we know there's much more that could be said if we come up with scenarios, but we want to keep this high level so that we can make this as generally applicable as possible. Um, they are, cantrips are the structural glue for many of the decks in the format. And even as restricted cards, uh, Ponder and Brainstorm are really important Vintage plays. Um, I, I still find myself surprised by where Ponder is not used. But I find myself surprised by where Merchant Scroll isn't isn't played. (laughs) Um, are, Are you, Kevin, surprised that Ponder is not more ubiquitous?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I think that you could be adding Ponder to more decks than currently play it. I think a few things like, say, Bugfish, for example. Decks that wouldn't be caught dead without their one Brainstorm but which could really benefit from a Ponder as well.
1: You did not play with Ponder at the Venice Championships,
0: right? That's correct. I chose Sensei's Divining Top over Ponder very intentionally. Which is
1: technically a cantrip. It's a barbed <laughs> sextant. <laughs>
0: That's right. And that is primarily because I was, being a control deck with Deathrite Shaman, I was expecting my games to go long. It It dovetails directly with my what I mentioned earlier about with Ponder, the utility goes way down if you expect to actually draw through all those cards. Right. And right. the top is, is a nod to that consideration.
1: It is interesting how top, many of the principles that we talked about in terms of Ponder apply with even greater force to top because of top's continued capacity to sort of extend its sight deeper into your deck. Um, yeah. you
0: might You might say that top is sort of a logical conclusion to many of those points. It's it's about the most f- uh, far-looking that a vintage card can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. I've never really considered it in that fashion, but I can't think of a vintage card that is more long-term intended than Top is. There are plenty of cards that stay around for a plenty long time. Jace the Mind Sculptor can be in in play for turns and turns, but that's not his purpose necessarily. I mean, he plays a bunch of roles. Sensei's Divining Top is never going to bounce a creature for you, and it's not a win condition, so it's hard to draw that comparison too directly. Mm -hmm. But I played Top in that control deck at the Vintage Champs because I was expecting to be in long-game scenarios and I wanted to get maximal value out of my cantrip. Yeah, and Ponder was certainly a consideration there
1: and and though we're not going to focus on Top Top can also do a lot of the things that frankly that um, the Brainstorm can do by hiding keeping a card hidden on top of your deck
0: Mm -hmm. and over a long enough time frame all of the considerations come to bear about whether or not you have access to shuffle effects, when you play it uh, hiding cards as you put it basically everything that all three of these cards do Top comes up against those considerations at one point or another So our listener question for this show, Steve, relates directly to our topic and directly to your question. Do you play Ponder in your vintage deck or decks? And if you don't, why not? Now we don't need answers like, I play workshops (laughs) or I play goblins. But for those of you who are playing primarily blue decks or decks with ready access to blue and you're not playing Ponder, but you could, what caused you to make that choice? Thank you for listening to episode 34 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.
2: We get the next day for this game! <laughs>